I've been teaching the boys a bunch of new card games here in the Miller Homeschool, uh, sorry, household, these past couple of weeks. Crazy Eights, Gin Rummy, High Stakes Texas Hold'em. Just kidding. We haven't gotten to that one yet. But we're looking for how we can add a little more variety to our all-day, everyday togetherness. Um, adding some games to the rotation with Uno and Chess and Checkers and Skipbo and all the rest. Peyton isn't quite old enough to get all those games, but he does all right. Except for when he loses. We're still working on that part. Because his default response right now is to very physically, demonstrably, dramatically, and audibly rage against the unfairness of the universe that has done this horrible thing to him. Maybe you can relate. I know I can. <laughs> I mean, it can't be my fault that I lost, can it? It is a well-established fact that sensitivity to and feelings of rage at unfairness are innate to our DNA. Scientists have done studies with infants that show that even pre-verbal kids are able to identify and react against the unfair. Heck, scientists have done studies with monkeys where when two monkeys both receive a bit of cucumber as a reward for a certain behavior, they're both thrilled. But if one of the monkeys starts receiving the far superior grape as a reward while the other keeps receiving a cucumber, well, that bit of inferior vegetable matter will get thrown right back in the scientists' faces in protest at the unfairness, the injustice of it all. It's not fair, kids cry out. And any of you parents out there, you know, the default parental response to it's not fair is life's not fair, which is true, of course. But at the same time, I don't think it's simply a mark of immaturity or naivete to think, well, yeah, but shouldn't we do something about it? Sometimes younger generations get a bad rap for being idealists who just don't understand the way the world works when they complain about injustice. But what if God put that sensitivity to injustice into our DNA for a reason? What if it's there because God wants us to do something about it? We've talked before about how God's grand vision for creation is that God would partner with humanity to bring the love and life and goodness, and holistic well-being, and justice of God to the whole universe. Being sensitive to injustice from birth might be a key part of what makes us in the image of God in the first place. Because that sense, this isn't right and someone should fix it, sometimes, often maybe, gets a response from God like, you're right, that's why I put you there. We're in a series leading up to Easter called Good News because we want to ask the question, in what sense is Jesus good news, even today? There are so many people who have a keen sense of the injustice of the world, who want desperately to work to end the oppression they see around them, who are frustrated by the lack of progress on economic justice or anti-racism or abuse of power. And people like that, who have those concerns, can find good news in the story of Jesus, in the story of Palm Sunday, which is the day we are celebrating together this week. Luke 19 tells us that Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As they came close as near as Bethany and Bethpage at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as you arrive, you'll find a colt tied up, one that nobody has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you untying it? You should say, because the master needs it. The two who were sent went off and found it as Jesus had said to them. They untied the colt, and its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? Because the master needs it, they replied. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and mounted Jesus on it. 
As he was going along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And when he came to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to celebrate and praise God at the tops of their voices for all the powerful deeds they had seen. Blessings to the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Peace in heaven and glory on high. The people of Israel in the time of Jesus were acutely aware of the injustices of the world around them. They had been oppressed by one nation after another for centuries, and now Rome was doing the job. There was even talk of revolution from some parts of society, talk that would soon result in the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Roman armies about 40 or so years after these events that we're talking about today. The people were desperate for someone to put this injustice that they experienced every day to an end. They were anticipating eagerly the day that God had promised. When a king would come in the name of the Lord, would overthrow Rome and end the injustices they suffered. And here, riding into town, is good news. Jesus, intentionally embodying the words of the prophet Zechariah, words all of these people would have immediately recognized as coming true right before their eyes. Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem, for look, your king comes to you. Triumphant and glorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The king is here. The world is about to be made right again. Rome will be vanquished and Israel will be set free. And they cheer and shout and echo the words of Psalm 118, rejoicing in the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams. Jesus was clearly using the words of the prophets to claim to be the Messiah, the king come from God. And the people were ecstatic, and they shout out accordingly. But then Luke's story goes on. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell your disciples to stop that. Let me tell you, replied Jesus, if they stayed silent, the stones would be shouting out. When Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it. And the people here must have started wondering, what exactly is going on right now? This isn't how we expected the king to come. Maybe those are tears of joy? But Jesus speaks these words over the city of Jerusalem. About this capital city and its temple that was supposed to be the city he had come to rule over and to save. He says instead, Jerusalem, if only you had known on this day, even you, what peace meant. But now it's hidden and you can't see it. Yes, the days are coming upon you when your enemies will build up earthworks all around you and encircle you and squeeze you from every direction. They will bring you crashing to the ground, you and your children with you. They won't leave one single stone on another because you didn't know the moment when God was visiting you. Most Palm Sunday celebrations I've been to, they don't get to that part of the triumphal entry where Jesus uses the language of the Old Testament prophets again prophets like Jeremiah in particular, to proclaim not freedom for Jerusalem, but yet more destruction. The very problem that people thought he was about to fix. But Jesus is using prophetic words intentionally throughout this story, not just because they sounded nice and ominous and got his point across, but because people would know that he was saying a lot in those words. Because they would have known that the prophets used those same sorts of words to describe a cycle that the people of Israel went through again and again. 
And you might find it helpful even to kind of sketch out this cycle on a piece of paper or something if you're visual in that way. But God forms a nation, a people, to represent and bring God's justice throughout the world. But then the injustice of God's people results in judgment. Judgment that looks like the end of the story, like God's people are finished. But out of the destruction of judgment, somehow God forms a new people who can fulfill the mission they were created for in the first place. I think Jesus was wanting to communicate this entire cycle by invoking the words and actions of the prophets on his way into Jerusalem to say, my kingdom is going to follow this same arc that you all are familiar with from the past. And so uh, today we're going to take a look at this arc one step at a time. And incidentally, We're going to be looking at a lot of these dynamics in more detail in the weeks after Easter when we start a series going through the book of Jeremiah. So this is almost like a pre-introduction to that series, I guess. So first, part of the cycle, like we've seen, Jesus enacts the words of the prophets by riding into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey, making sure that all the people are thinking back to their shared history as God's people, who have been given the task of representing God to the world around them. He ignites their imagination and gets them thinking prophetic sorts of thoughts. But then Jesus invokes the words of the prophets to proclaim judgment for this city, for these people, and for particular reasons. See, by using prophetic words, Jesus is communicating that the destruction that will come to Jerusalem is not some random political event dictated by who has the strongest military. It's not because God gets God's feelings hurt because Jesus, his son, is rejected and God wants to get revenge. But instead, this judgment is the result of God's justice, just like it was in the prophetic days. When you look through the prophets, when they speak words of destruction and judgment, which they do a lot, they usually mention the reasons, too, right alongside that. One of those reasons is idolatry, that God's people, instead of worshiping the true God, go after the lowercase gods of the people around them. In other words, they stop believing that the way of God will bring life and holistic peace, and they become afraid. And their fear leads them to try to control their own destiny, whether by worshiping the gods of fertility or rain, which are useless, or the gods of power, which lead inevitably to violence and oppression, or the gods of money and comfort, which lead inevitably to greed and selfishness. Now, some of those gods might not tempt us much any longer, but others still call to us today, don't they? And again, this isn't a case of God getting God's feelings hurt and exacting revenge. Although the prophets do speak quite movingly of God's feelings being hurt in some real sense, which we'll look at more in the coming months when we dive into the book of Jeremiah. But the judgment that is coming is not because God feels sad about being rejected in favor of younger, shinier idols. It's that the inevitable effect of this idolatry is injustice. Idolatry leads to oppression, to violence, to greed, to injustice. The prophets have so much to say on this subject. Jeremiah, for example, in chapter 21, verse 12, tells those in positions of power in Israel that each day they need to rescue the person who's been robbed from the hand of the oppressor, or else my wrath will go out like a fire and will burn with no one quenching it. Why is God's wrath going out, according to Jeremiah? Because the oppressed have not been rescued from the hand of their oppressors. And then in verse 16, Jeremiah sets up a contrast between those who were faithful to God 
and those who are not. Those who were faithful were the ones who made decisions on behalf of the weak and needy. And those decisions resulted in good things. And then there's this great line. Isn't this what it means to acknowledge me? Says Yahweh. Isn't this what it means to acknowledge me? According to Jeremiah, what it means to follow God is to make decisions on behalf of the weak and the needy. But then there's the contrast. Because you have no eye or mind except for money, for shedding the blood of the innocent, and for oppression and extortion, therefore Yahweh has proclaimed judgment is coming. I could go on and on with examples like this. Idolatry is tightly linked with injustice in the prophets, which then results in judgment. That is what Jesus is calling to people's minds as he approaches the city of Jerusalem as her king, that these same things are happening even now, and they will have the same results that they did then. Oppression and injustice are rampant among God's people, and judgment will be the result. Jesus is calling to mind this cycle that we talked about. God's people are meant to be a people of justice, but instead they go after the oppressive ways of the world around them, and so judgment comes. So Jesus, the king, comes and proclaims destruction of the city he's supposed to be saving. How does that make sense? How is that good news? We have a discomfort sometimes with ideas of judgment and of God's wrath and the like. They don't mesh easily with our belief in a God of love. But there's a refrain that pops up in Jeremiah from time to time of God saying in his anguish, how can I not deal with these injustices? How can I keep on ignoring them? Judgment is God putting a stop to injustice, saying, this has gone on long enough and I can't let the oppression and violence go on any longer. The prophets portray God speaking in anguish, saying, I've told them and I've told them and I've told them that the injustice needs to stop and they aren't listening. And now what else can I do? I need to stop it. Judgment is good news for those who long for justice because it is the evidence that God isn't going to let oppression keep going indefinitely. It's God's way of saying, the only way to save my people, to get them back on the way of justice, is to bring about what looks like the end. But it won't be the end. Because the prophets also tell us to look forward and hope that beyond the end, there will be a new people who have come back to God, who will once again be God's people living the way of justice and peace. I think Jesus is pulling all of this together in his words and actions on Palm Sunday. The whole prophetic cycle of rejection of injustice, destruction of the systems of oppression, and then a faithful people coming out the other side. Jesus is saying, if you want to see the way of peace, watch what your king's about to do, and then come and follow me. Watch as I offer compassion to the victims of oppression. Watch as I pray for justice to come. Watch as I act on behalf of justice. Watch as I sacrifice my own life, allowing the forces of oppression to unleash their anger on me. And then join the new community of people who are committed to doing that sort of justice together, united in the hope of the resurrection that proves that God's justice will get the last word. That's the invitation to us from Palm Sunday. 
to say yes to being a part of the new people of God who are committed to bringing the good news of justice through our own lives of compassion, prayer, action, and sacrifice to join in this new thing that our humble King is doing. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a God of justice. Thank you that in Palm Sunday, we get to see that you are acting on behalf of those who are oppressed and that you invite us to join you in that action. Help us to trust you instead of trusting in the idols that lead to injustice and oppression. Help us to follow you in the way of justice. Help us to be a part of your new people who are embodying your justice on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.